Hello and welcome to Econoday Unplugged on Thursday, 30th of January 2020. Mark Pender is across the pond stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Well, there's been rather a lot on investors' plates this week. We've already had central bank announcements from both the Fed and the Bank of England, in addition to the first look at fourth quarter US GDP. Still to come is the preliminary flash estimate of year-end eurozone growth, alongside the regional's provisional January inflation report. We're also due some important consumer sector data from Germany too. And if that wasn't enough, late on Friday, after all the talking, we finally get Brexit as well. And this little lot, of course, comes against a, a background of rising concerns about the possible impact of the coronavirus to start in China at the end of last year, but has already spread to at least another 16 countries over the course of the last few weeks. Now, as far as the virus goes, initial reaction in financial markets was a predictable, if reasonably limited, shift into safe haven assets such as the dollar, Swiss franc, bonds and gold at the expense of the renminbi yuan, oil and, of course, equities. Since then, we've seen some volatile action and a partial reversal, reversal of some of those moves. And that sort of suggests that, at least for now, investors are not really expecting any major economic impact, possibly looking back the response to the SARS virus that struck in 2002 and 2003. However, until the outbreak is brought under control, there must be some downside risk to economic growth, and not just in China, Bear in mind that around 300 of the world's top 500 companies operate in Wuhan City, the epicentre of the outbreak. So volatility levels could well remain elevated and will no doubt be subject to breaking news on the issue. Rather more certain, I guess, was the outcome of Wednesday's FOMC meeting. But Mark... If no change in rates didn't surprise anybody, yep. was there anything of note in the details? And for that matter, was there any mention of this coronavirus? Uh, yes. Uh, it, uh, Jerome Powell in his comments um, uh, downplayed the impact on, uh, U on the U.S., at least relative to other countries, given um, the larger domestic um, market here. Um, and as far as surprises, I would say the... There were no surprises. Uh, yeah, I think the assessment was a little bit uh, uh, weaker, uh, specifically the uh, household spending assessment, which went from uh, strong to moderate. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things in between strong to moderate that weren't like solid or something like that. And I think that that was um, uh, justified or it unfolded in today's GDP report for the fourth quarter, which showed a little bit of slowing for consumer spending at a 1.8% uh, inflation-adjusted annual rate. Uh, that's a little bit down uh, from trend. Uh, the overall rate was 2.1%. Interestingly, it was supported by um, net exports, which really reflected a, a dip, a uh, sharp dip in imports. Um, now, whether the, how that import and trade will play with the virus is certainly of interest here. Um, but as far as uh, I, I guess um, for the the U.S. Uh, outlook for the first quarter here, based on the Fed and based on the fourth quarter data, and also based on what looks like it will be a a favorable jobs report uh, next week for January, um, indications such as jobless claims and stuff are going down. So it uh, it looks like the U.S. economy is in for a moderate uh, uh, first quarter, which is really uh, you know, the Fed 
is going the bar is set high for any kind of change with the Fed right now. Not only is it an election year, but um, the economy itself, inflation's a little bit low, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll get core inflation data tomorrow. But it's you know you know uh, in the high between one point five and two percent, and they wanted around two percent. So and they also have now an issue that uh, played out yesterday. Of course, was the temporary repo overnight operations that have been going on since um, September uh, uh, following uh, uh, a scare in the repo market, lack of liquidity. They've been adding what they consider to be technical amounts of, uh, of uh, liquidity, which is about three to $400 billion so far. And the question is, is that going into the stock market? Mm-hmm. And has that been inflating the stock market? And Powell addressed that, I think, to a certain extent. The, the Fed doesn't intend to continue this. Uh, they, they've committed themselves at least to April, which is you know several more months uh, of more liquidity in the markets. So that's probably going to be uh, help, help hold up the stock market, at least here for the next few months. Well, we're, but talking then, a, we're talking a fairly significant amount of money they're actually putting in, though, aren't we? Yes, yeah, a very significant amount. And it's a backup. It's a, a rewinding, a re-unwinding of the quantitative tightening. Um, and But these are centered in short-term securities and not long-term securities. But uh, in any case, the liquidity uh, may be having an effect. He, you know, he sidestepped that. I, I don't think that the Fed really, um, you know, it's a tough, had the markets gone down uh, over this period, we wouldn't be talking about this. But, the, you know, the correlation is there. And so uh, the markets went up and they were adding liquidity, which is what they did during quantitative easing after the financial crisis 10 years ago. So, um, but, uh, but that seems to be a limited, uh, uh, if they're going to re- return to quantitative easing in, in an official capacity, we won't know that for a while. And I don't expect that. Uh, and I don't think the markets expect it either. But now okay. what about the Bank of England? We had They kept their tightening bias? How, how did, we were going to get a rate cut. Okay, just before I get on to the Bank of England, if you don't mind, a couple of questions on the FOMC. Um, One, I noticed, um, I think back in the last week anyway, certainly, people are talking about a possible increase in the uh, the interest the Fed pays on its excess reserves just to try and lift the effective Fed funds rate a little bit. Uh They Mm -hmm. did do that. And yes, that was, uh, should higher. It's a technical move to keep the uh, the funds on target. They have a range of one and a half to one and three quarters percent. They want to keep it at one and five eighths, and so to help do that, they uh, make, make uh, they made adjustments on on, um, on interest paid on excess reserves. Okay, but no implications for policy. No, no implications for policy. Right. No. And the other thing it, I was, was going to yeah. ask you, I always ask you at this time of the year, um, January regular rotation of the regional Fed bank presidents didn't Any make a. Thing- any well, pensions, hawkish, dovish, nothing whatsoever. Well, we had two. Uh, we had two um, hawks uh, moving out. Rosengren from um, uh, from Boston, and um, the Kansas City George. Um, and but the rotation didn't. Uh, we, we still had a ten, uh, 10 to zero vote, and that was the the vote. Uh, we have four uh, rotating in. Um, you know, I. I, I you know, when you get um, uh, new people in, they can they start getting the headlines, and, but they can reverse their votes, and it's it's hard to really. You know, sometimes they're sounding dovish, or like Bullard or something, and then sometimes from uh, St. Louis, and sometimes he can be hawkish. So I, it's hard to really um, to 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 nail anything 
uh, to make that a very significant amount. It's not going to be on the side. Now, for the BOE, you have two um, dissenters, and there's the, the same dissenters. And uh, do they get extra press? Do they like? Do, do they get their their faces in, in the press and that kind of stuff? Well, I certainly do because they're dissenters, and I think you've really, you know, already hit on the the key point coming out of today's uh, Bank of England meeting. As we uh, chatted about a bit last week, um, the markets were certainly getting to the stage where they were actually anticipating a full cut, or at least a 25 basis point cut in bank rate. Um, as we went into today's meeting, I think it's fair to say that although analysts were marginally in favour of no change, as far as um, what was priced into the market, it was really 50-50 as to whether or not you know, they'd stay pat or they'd actually come out with some kind of a cut. As it turned out, they didn't do anything, so bank rate stays at 0.75%, but I think the major surprise here was really the vote. I think generally sort of embedded into the market was the idea if they don't do anything today, the chances are that we're still going to see more of the doves starting to move into the idea that look rates should be lower but as you mentioned in fact it was only Haskell and Saunders who have been the two dissenters a little while now who maintain their call for an immediate 25 basis point cut but the other seven members including Governor Carney stuck with the view that 0.75% is correct for, for the time being as a result of which we did actually see the pound rally a little bit on that just on the grounds at well perhaps because it was still a relatively comfortable vote, it reduces the likelihood that rates will have to come down. However, you talked about this sort of risk assessment and, and the policy bias. Really looking at what the banks come out and said now, they do still talk about interest rates potentially having to go up if everything falls into place according to their own current economic forecast. However, at the same time, they also came out and said they think that rates may have to come down if the current, you know, the soft, the uh, the soft survey data. So the surveys we've seen coming out for January, which have been pretty pretty robust on the whole, if those figures are not actually um, reflecting the half numbers themselves, rates may have to be cut because the economy simply isn't doing well enough. Because we all know the fourth quarter is going to look pretty horrible. So in a nutshell, I think what it really comes down to is the fact that although the vote was still a relatively comfortable seven two for no change, the way the the MPCs talking and certainly levels of uncertainty remain high despite the fact we've got the election out of the way now if there's this sense that they're that much more willing or at least it wouldn't take much to push some other members who are currently voting for no change into the doves camp so markets i think as we get into you know the next couple of meetings or so if we haven't seen some relatively decent numbers for the first quarter and that's the hard data then speculations be very much for a cut in interest rate so uk rates still at least potentially could go down certainly i think if we are going to see an early move in UK rates is going to be down rather than up. And what about the virus? Was that uh, discussed? Only just touched upon loosely. I think at this stage, a bank, and to be fair, I think like a lot of other central banks, they really, you know, they're not too sure exactly what's going to happen. I think um, as mentioned on the kind of the intro, I think you know, financial markets by and larger, looking what happened in the past, be it SARS, be it Ebola, um, yeah, you tend to get an initial knee-jerk reaction from markets in along the lines, well, look, we don't like this. What does it actually mean? And clearly, you can tell a story whereby consumption could be hit quite significantly and because of all the you know the global supply chains dotted around now it could have some you know potentially serious negative effects if it's not brought under control but i think at this stage it's, it's a bit of a wait and see well how do you think this is going to play out in the consumer confidence you had eurozone economic sentiment 
for January, and that went up pretty noticeably. Uh, yeah, I, I, it looks like. Did that have any any effect? Did that pick up any of this uh, virus issue? Not really. I think really most of the data were collected too soon. It really only started hitting the headlines over here over the last week or so. And I think within within the eurozone area itself, I mean, we do have reported cases now in what Germany and France. But yeah, that's pretty well it for the time being, well, as, far as, as far as most of Europe's concerned. Well, so, we're. Well, the U.S. is going to get consumer sentiment tomorrow, which is updated every two weeks. We may get a little bit that of might be interesting. Yeah. That. And just yeah. a real quick aside, um, the consumer confidence report, which came out on Tuesday, was uh, very was very solid. And what was very most solid about it was the employment assessments. Whether or not that correlates to uh, strength in uh, next week's January employment report. Uh, is uncertain, but it will uh, increase forecasts for that report. I just wanted to get that out because I think that that's going to be part of the U.S. story is this labor market that that still appears to be very strong. Right. And that's something that's interesting. I mean, we talked about this on various other podcasts, but um, for the Eurozone itself, we had another surprisingly strong employment report out today. This is for December. We lag behind your side somewhat. But um, now that again shows that the unemployment rate in the Eurozone is at its lowest level in more than a decade. And it really is the case now that you know, whether or not we're going to start to see this translating into high wages. Wages have been accelerating now for over a year. The question mark is whether we're going to see this tightness, you know, giving the wage side the extra push that finally starts to feed through into inflation. So um, inflation numbers, I must say, out of the Eurozone on Friday. These are flash figures for January. Well worthwhile keeping an eye on because we have seen this upshift in the core rate. And were that to be continued tomorrow, then you know I think you know, the idea of ECB cuts are quickly going to go out the window. Um, right, quickly stick with the UK. I think, as we mentioned, uh, the, the first quarter numbers are going to be very important now for UK policy. But more longer term, of course, it's going to be good old Brexit. Um, the withdrawal bill came into effect in the UK um, last week and the European Parliament signed off on it yesterday. So Brexit will happen at 2300 GMT on Friday and the British flag that flutters outside of the European Parliament in Brussels will be lowered in the early hours of Saturday morning and put on display in a museum. However, just to reiterate, as we've mentioned before, that to all intents and purposes, nothing will happen at first because we'll now just have this transition period when effectively the UK will still be operating under EU rules, and that's going to last until the end of the year. Well, now, the, the Bank of England's monetary policy report, which came out today, yep. right? Didn't wasn't there some indication of, of they they expect some slowing to occur from this? Well, I must say, if you're a sterling investor, and by, and by that I mean a long-term sterling investor, then uh, as you mentioned, this monetary policy report from the Bank Bank of England really makes pretty dismal reading. And the, one of the key takeaways from this is their assumption about what potential supply growth is over here. And it is as it was, um, they had only 1.5%. So if you like, you know, that's the kind of the equilibrium rate they perceived for the UK economy to grow out you know, without inflation uh, taking off. Well, they've now reduced that down to just 1.1%. And that really is, at the end of the day, just a reflection of the fact that UK productivity growth at the moment really is quite lousy. And um, certainly it seems to be, well, 
clearly lagging well behind what you're seeing on, on your side of the of the pond. And and really, if these numbers are correct, then you know, longer term, it suggests that sterling could well come under pressure simply because we will not be performing as well, you know, as perhaps the rest of the eurozone or certainly some other parts of the world. So their general assessment, I think, of the UK economy is pretty gloomy. Now, I think yeah, it's, it's worthwhile bearing in mind when you're looking at UK interest rates and where they might go. If you're really saying that the UK economy can really only grow just over 1% a year in terms of, you know, the supply side. Well, if we see demand growing at, let's say, 1.5%, which is still pretty sluggish, that's going to put upside pressure on inflation because the supply side simply can't react fast enough. So I think longer term could actually mean that, you know, lead to higher inflation might otherwise be the case. But immediately ahead, what the bank has also come out with and said in this report is that the so-called output gap, so basically how much slack we still have left in the economy, that's about twice as much as they thought previously. And that means you know, we could actually get a spurt in demand and the output gap can close or actually leads to higher inflation. So you know, near-term prospects, you know, say rates going up, I think are pretty well zero. But longer term, if you believe some of these bank forecasts, although on paper they don't look that great, um, could actually lead to, you know, to interest rates being that much higher. Well, let me just add one quick thing on, on business investment. We we're talking about productivity growth. Um, here it's been, been flat in the GDP report. It's the third quarter in a row now that um, uh, uh, non-residential investment has um, um, uh, contracted. So, And that is a contrast now to residential investment, which now is picking up very strongly after a long uh, a year and a half, two years of, of being depressed. But... Um, uh, if you look at the capital goods data, I mean, uh, it's flat. And they uh, they described it, the Fed described uh, this area as weak along with um, trade, uh, cross-border trade is weak, exports being weak. So those are the two um, factors for the U, negative factors for the U.S. Uh, trade and business investment. But the consumer is what counts the most here. So, and that's doing fine. It's interesting what you say about the investment side, because I think one of the big aspects for, you know, well, the European economy, within that, I've, I include the UK, as mentioned, UK productivity rates are currently lousy. And a big chunk of that has to do with the fact that investment, uh, capital investment in the UK has really, well, it, it fell virtually throughout the entire part of uh, 2018 going into 2019, which meant that, you know, a lot of the would-be productive potential which could have been added to the UK production sector you know just never was never actually realized mm. and you're seeing the same sort of thing albeit to a lesser extent in Europe and although not too many people actually look at the, the ECB's M3 money data these days so those people yeah. who are paid to do it such as myself you do occasionally get some interesting aspects in coming out of that and looking at it what you can see is that although a la US, the actual borrowing side for the household sector is holding up pretty well and growth rates of borrowing there are running at the sort of rates which, to be honest, ECB would be perfectly happy about. What we've seen though over the last you know, several months is borrowing by corporate, the non-financial corporate sector, mm -hmm. slowing off quite sharply. And that, of course, starts raising alarm bells over what they're going to be doing where, with their investment during the course of this year. Mm -hmm. So I think you know, investment, certainly within Europe anyway, is going to be yeah, a, a major area to look at to see whether or not you know this long-awaited pickup in growth in Europe is going to come to fruition or not. Well, you know what's interesting is what you're looking at. Yeah, money supply. Money supply here has been discredited for the last 25 years as unreliable numbers that, that don't correlate uh, with actual economic activity. Uh, you, did you? You all, We all. We, you have what M4 in Europe that's also tracked widely. Is that right? 
Well, it's, it's M4 they still look at at the Bank of England, but to be honest, it's not really regarded as being a particularly important indicator. And M3, slightly narrower measure as far as the Eurozone is concerned. Now, it's got to be said, as you, as you pointed out on your side, that the correlation between M3 or M4 and inflation or just nominal GDP has been well, pretty awful for some considerable time now. But the monetary authorities do look at sort of the key private sector lending counterpart, because that's the key bit they're, they're really focusing upon us to see whether or not you know people or companies are borrowing with a view to going out and spending so uh-huh. that's kind of a crucial side here but yes in terms of the actual headline aggregates no one really pays any more attention to them interesting what they do look at, and as I say, before we go on for too long, mention on the, on the Eurozone side, um, I should just quickly say, as folks will no doubt have noticed, there's nothing of any note at the ECB at their meeting last night. Although they did, as we talked a little about last, uh, the last podcast, they did mark down their, or I should say mark up really, their risk assessment. They're not quite so negative now on their assumed economic risks to their forecasts that they were before. All that said, they've still come out with a view that interest rates are going to stay at current levels or lower. So if we see a move on Eurozone rates over the foreseeable future, it's more likely to be down than up. But don't hold your breath. It looks like they're going to be a hold for some while. Mm. Uh, we will uh, get flash um, important numbers for the Eurozone this week. Uh, tomorrow we'll get the flash preliminary flash uh, GDP figures for the fourth quarter. So you mentioned you're running it. Was it 2.1% yeah, for the fourth 1. quarter? Well, I mean, the Eurozone on a, an annualized basis, to put it uh, comparable with uh, US standards, is expected to come in at just 0.8%. And that would be in line with the third quarter, which really is, well, let's be honest, pretty well rubbish. So it's a bit like, I guess, for investors, uh, the same cases in the UK, because we've had, you talked about the economic sentiment index uh, for January. That was a pretty decent number for the eurozone. Uh, Levels aren't necessarily so important. But what we have seen there now is three consecutive rises. Now, the ECB really likes this survey. It's, It's up to date. So it is for January. It covers eurozone as a whole. It looks at consumer and business confidence and various bits and pieces of what's going on in industry. And for most of last year, and indeed going into 2018, it was just heading south. Now we've seen these three successive rises. It may mean, well, I don't mean really call it a pivot because it's not sharp enough that, but police, perhaps we're going towards some kind of U-turn now in re- with regards to the slowdown of the Eurozone economy. So if that were to continue and we mentioned that the labour market you know, is is relatively tight by Eurozone standards, then mm-hmm. you know, there could be this chance we'll start to see the inflation numbers moving up. Although, of mm-hmm. course, they've still got a long way to go before the ECB would even contemplate the idea about coming out and um, hiking interest rates. And there's always this unknown uh, risk of a virus factor on sentiment that you can yeah. come and go, you know. Yeah, I think that's right. And although I say it's, it's interesting, I always find it quite fascinating looking at how markets react. So you've got the knee-jerk reaction. Then yeah, where, too. Yeah. yeah. And then on Tuesday, we start to see markets thinking, oh, I don't know, there's reports Australia have come out and said that you know, they can recreate the coronavirus. I think your side probably can as well. So perhaps it's not so bad. So they start you know, buying things back on Tuesday. Then it starts going south again on Wednesday. And we've had further mm-hmm. losses on equities today. So again, it's just the volatility reflection of the, the general uncertainty about what's going to go on. Mm-hmm. So I think certainly you know, investors need to keep an eye on that for the time being, at least in terms of the headlines and just to see you know, what's exactly going on there 
Okay. Um, are we done? I think we're so, probably yeah, yeah. done for the day, aren't yeah. we? Um, okay, then. So let's round it off there from Mark and myself. Next week, we'll um, talk about coronavirus. We'll have uh, our Asian expert, Brian Jackson, with us. So please join us then so we can discuss uh, his take on how this virus is impacting the region's economy and asset markets. Meantime, do keep an eye on Econday's global economic calendar. For all the information analysis, you need to get the most out of the latest economic indicators and events. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Bye for now.